I would say that folks who are working even on basic research, like asking really fundamental questions, there are still ways to take your research and, and twist it in different directions where you can actually contribute to conserving your organism or better understanding how it's being impacted by global change. So over the arc of my career so far, that's something I've done and I think it's been really rewarding. So I would, I guess I would encourage people that aren't thinking about those kinds of questions already uh, to maybe consider that. Beyond the Bench, the podcast where we delve into the stories behind scientists and their work. I am your host, Madison Sankovitz. I am a PhD student here in the Department of Entomology at UC Riverside. And today, co-hosting with me, we have Jesus Pena, a PhD student in the Microbiology Department. Hi, Jesus. Hey, Madison. How's it going? Good. How has your week in science been? It was, uh, it was all right. It was okay as far as weeks in science go. Uh, <laughs> Any specific projects you're working on? Yeah, I'm redoing some mating trials with uh, a couple of different fungi uh, just to get into some more, get some more statistical power behind some of my observations. Wait, so how do you mate fungi? Uh, you starve them, you put them together, and then you lock them in the dark for a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the perfect recipe for a mating situation. Absolutely. Works every time. <laughs> How about you? Um, this week, honestly, I can't point my finger on anything specific that I've made a lot of progress on, but I have all these projects sort of up in the air and I've been taking a lot of time to organize them and just sort of get myself scheduled for what I need to be doing when, which is sometimes I find what you just need to do in science yeah. when you have things all over the place. So yeah, that's been my week. But today we're really excited to have on the podcast Dr. Hollis Woodard. She is an assistant professor here in the Department of Entomology at UC Riverside, and she studies bumblebees. Hollis, welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much. Okay. If you were talking to a 10-year-old, what type of scientist would you say you are? Hmm. Um, I'd probably say bee scientist it's good to lead with the bees you know people are yeah. pretty interested in that so you can catch a 10 year old's attention or anybody's attention i feel like right now by saying that you work on bees so yeah i'd probably say a bee scientist okay so do you study anything specific about bees oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i uh i work on bumblebees this one particular group of bees uh i would say within bumblebees we ask all kinds of questions in my lab so you know, we, we work on everything from like how they store nutrients to um, how their populations are faring out in the wild. You know, we have a lot of lab stuff, field stuff. So the questions are kind of all over the place. They, they tend to be centered around like nutrition and uh, feeding behavior, I would say. Um, but even then we have all kinds of stuff going on. So it's really focused around this organism that we're all like in love with in my lab. <laughs> yeah, it's a lovable organism for sure. <laughs> Do you mainly study them around here in California or do you have field sites all over the place? Uh, honestly, the, the bumblebee that we work with the most is Bombus impatiens, which is a species. It's this like hyper uh, abundant common species in the eastern U.S. And we have them shipped out here. 
um, to California. We have to keep them under kind of quarantine conditions. And we work with that bee because uh, it's one of our model bumblebees. We have a genome sequence for it. So we have like a reference genome and we can rear them really easily in the lab. And, you know, there are about 250 species of bumblebee and a lot of them you can't even rear them in the lab or no one has successfully yet. So it's a nice thing that we have the species that we can kind of mass produce and use for our experiments. Uh, but then we're also starting some work um, looking at wild bees too, like different species. Okay. Shipping bees. How do you ship <laughs> bees and keep them alive? Uh, so bumblebees are social, like honeybees, you can ship them in a box. So we order them and they get shipped, um, with a, they have pollen and they have a nectar like supply underneath the, the nest box and you can just mail them and they get here and they usually seem a little agitated, but okay. So this is kind of the standard way that people do things with bumblebee, like lab research. Okay. So are there like, specific instructions given to the UPS people or something to not shake the box or it's, do they just get sort of tumbled around in there? It says don't <laughs> this side up. <laughs> um, okay. I have gotten a colony before um, when I was a grad student, um, the poor male person was delivering our, this, these boxes of bees and one of the boxes was just completely upside down. I was like, no. no. <laughs> and they have like honey pots in the nest, these little open pots of honey. And so if you flip it upside down, mm -hmm. it all drains out. It's just a mess. So, so were the bees covered in honey? Did they, they survive? Were so cute. Um, <laughs> I think they made it. So they're really good at cleaning themselves off. They groom each other and themselves. So um, mostly themselves. Um, but uh, so, yeah, they were okay, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I have kind of a naive, very basic question, but what, where does the word bumblebee come from? Why? So we have honeybees and they make honey, but what is bumble? Uh, as far as I understand it, so they've been called a few different things, kind of like colloquially. So mm -hmm. they were called humblebees originally. Oh, wow. I know. That's so nice. Ah, it's so cute. Yeah. So, and then it switched at some point it, um, it to, to Bumblebee instead. Okay. So it's, it's like a common name huh. for, I think just the way they kind of, I don't know, they're kind of chunky and they sort of float around and okay. lazily sometimes. And unless we're trying to catch them, then they suddenly get really fast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So you mentioned that you're moving into studying just a lot of different types of native bees. And I saw that you have this new national native bee monitoring network. Can you tell us a little bit about that, if I got that correct? Yep. Uh, so it's just starting. So it'll launch officially in probably April, so in a few months. Um, uh, working on bumblebees, they're the group that we have some of the best evidence for decline. So people have been watching bumblebees kind of forever and, and keeping track of them to some extent, especially in the UK. But here in the US, too, we have some pretty good records uh, of bumblebees going back um, for quite a while. And so we have a, a fairly good understanding for bumblebees, much less so for most other bees of how they're doing through, through time. Um, and there are many bumblebees that are declining. So, uh, working on bumblebees, when I, when I first started, I didn't think about decline. I was just thinking, oh, I want to know how these bees operate. I was working on, um, the, essentially the brain of bumblebees and, and how their genomes had evolved through time and these sort of really basic research questions. And, um, in 2000 and 
11, uh, Sydney Cameron, who is at the University of Illinois, where I did my PhD. Um, she's a bumblebee person. She published this really important landmark paper in PNAS on bumblebee, like the status of bumblebees in the U.S. Not all species, but she looked at a, a subset of species and found that several of them are declining. And um, suddenly I was thinking, oh, you know, this thing that I've been working on, and I really started to like love is declining in these really dramatic ways in some cases. And so I started thinking, huh, you know, maybe the research that I'm doing that's really this basic research about genome evolution and stuff, maybe that could contribute to understanding bumblebee decline. Um, so I started getting interested in decline uh, when I was a postdoc doing some some research that falls under what I would consider the category of conservation physiology. So it's basic physiological and some behavioral experiments, but we're asking questions that relate to problems that we know that bumblebees are having, like pesticide exposure and... Um, loss of food resources and things like that. So my research program, when I got here, had already started to incorporate some things about um, uh, protecting and conserving bumblebees. But uh, in the last few years, um, I've gotten interested in broadening that and thinking a little bit more about some of the other bees that we often know less about. So this is going to be a new project that my lab group is leading, but it's a big collaborative project with a lot of different bee researchers. And um, the idea is that there are people all over the U.S. already who are monitoring native bees. Like people are putting in a lot of time, a lot of money to go out, catch bees, identify them and get good records of who's where. Um, so that's something that's already happening. But nobody is really coordinating. There's no... Um, effort to standardize the methods that are being used. And that seems like a great opportunity that if we could do that, if we could get people using some of the same, same methods, um, uh, everything from how they catch bees, where they catch them, um, what they do with their data. If we could find a way to streamline a pipeline that people use, then maybe we could start asking questions about how bees are doing like, across the United States. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of bees that have ranges that extend across multiple states and just looking in one state might be really important and telling about how the bee's doing there, but you can get a better picture of how it's doing overall if you expand that view. And you can also ask questions about like crop systems that exist across the U.S. or, or like in, across regions in the U.S. Like how are they impacting native bee populations across all the places where these crops are grown and things like that. You can ask these kind of big grand questions if you if you coordinate. So the hope is that we can do that. So is this a citizen science project or will it be just with researchers who are at institutions um so xerces is involved so and they have a really great um history of doing community science so we'll definitely be um looking for opportunities to do that but um unfortunately the budget for the project is pretty small and so we could we couldn't find we had to pick and choose and so we decided one of the biggest problems right now in the in bee monitoring is that or one of the biggest kind of restriction points is the taxonomic bottleneck so people are catching a lot of bees um, and they're curating them really well and then at the end of the day they don't really know what they've got because in some cases there are a handful of experts that can actually like correctly identify a lot of these species so um, we we emphasized in this project how to address that gap. How do we um, expand the educational resources related to bee taxonomy? How can we get people working together and collaborating more to make that more effective? So how do you identify bee species in some cases where it's really hard? Okay, I'm the worst person at that. <laughs> I'm actually terrible at that. Um, 
So, you know, we use characters. So there are different characters for different B groups. And um, sometimes when you get down to particular groups, the characters can be really, um, let's say, fine scale. You know, it's it's almost like an art. There are, you know, there are characters that have been described and characterized, so it's not just hand wavy. It, it really is a science, but it's just very difficult for a lot of people to have, I would say, the attention span and the attention to detail that it takes to do that kind of work. So, yeah, and I would imagine that even if you do have those skills and know what to look for, it just takes a long time. So much time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we have this situation happening where people can go out and collect and they can follow standardized methods. Um, but then they just end up with a lot of bees, like a lot of specimens. And, you know, identifying them, storing them properly, keeping track of your data, making sure it ends up in a repository where it's kind of safe and well cataloged. These are all kinds of issues that fortunately people have been thinking about these questions for a long time. And it's not just about bees. It's about how we, you know, collect anything and keep track of it. So, you know, there are a lot of great minds that have been thinking about this stuff for a long time. So now we're just going to be thinking about this in, in the context of bees and, and sometimes hopefully pulling methods that other people have already developed and have been thinking about. Are there any like, uh, DNA barcodes for these bees? Is that something that's happening? Yeah, that's a, I'd say the 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 uh, desire to uh, address this taxonomic bottleneck, it could be done a few different ways. We can train more taxonomists, and I think that needs to happen. And we can help people become better at taxonomy. So that's a thing that, that will mm -hmm. happen, needs to happen, et cetera. But um, there's also a big push to come up with methods to help automate the process or speed it up in some way. So barcoding is one way that certainly a lot of people are thinking about. And uh, yeah, we have barcode data for lots of bees. So that's that's one thing. And then the other thing is actually ways to automate um, identification that don't they're non-molecular, I guess is how I'd put it. So um, things like um, image recognition of uh, bees. And so I know there's some groups that are looking at like bee wing venation patterns and how to, um, you can use machine learning approaches to teach a machine how to identify certain bees based on the, the shape of the wings and the venation. So yeah, there are people that are working on, on all those fronts. Cool. So you were interested in bees as far back as your PhD. Were you interested in them before then? Or how did you get interested in this topic in general in um, your life? Yeah. When I was uh, in college, I got really interested in primatology. So I wanted to be like the next Jane Goodall or Diane Fossey. Um, I was really interested in how societies evolve. You know, how do you go from something where you're living on your own and um, – the name of the game is like survival and reproduction. How do you go, how do you evolve a system that where you have individuals like working together and cooperating and sometimes foregoing reproduction? Like the idea that that, that evolves, even though there was all kinds of theory that already existed to try to explain it, I still thought it was it's this still a big question that we, we don't really understand, you know, how it evolves. Um, we know some things about the ultimate forces, I'd say, but in terms of like the proximate mechanisms, there's still so much that we just don't know. So um, I started getting interested in, in this idea of the evolution of social groups. And, um, and then I became interested in the brain um, because it being sort of the seat of behavior. Uh, so I thought it was really interesting to think about how brains evolve to become social. 
Um, and then um, from that, uh, I started learning about experimental tractability <laughs> and how, you know, with primates, you basically have to like wait for one to pass away and then you try to get its brain really quickly. Wow. You can't, yeah, you, it's very difficult to study right. um, primate brains and um, it's very like opportunistic and low sample sizes and lots of manipulations you can't do. And so there were all kinds of questions. I was thinking, I don't know that I'm really going to be able to answer these questions working on primates. And so I started thinking, okay, what else could I study? And then came to social insects and, you know, we can run experiments with bumblebees and, you know, you with ants that that are like hundreds, thousands of individuals and we can manipulate them in all kinds of ways. And, um, the, the, the power, the experimental power that you have when you're working with insects is uh, tends to be a lot higher. So I love that about entomology. So with primates, if you're working with apes or monkeys or something, you can't just study their brains in the same ways that you study humans. I mean, I guess this sounds sort of ridiculous, but with humans, you can put all sorts of different things on them and put them through like CT scanners Mm -hmm. or MRIs or whatever. You can't do those with primates, right? You can do some imaging. So you actually can do some of that stuff, but I, I became interested in gene expression. So mm-hmm. I was really interested in, in like genome evolution and the idea that individuals are regulating gene expression in one another. So those kinds of things, you have to wait for somebody to pass away. That then, completely makes sense. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so did you, once you started studying bees, did you know that you wanted to become a professor eventually or did one thing just lead to another and you wanted to keep being able to lead your research in that way? I think I did. I think I did know that I wanted to become a professor, but I realize now that I don't. I didn't really understand what it actually entailed. I just kind of knew that this was the goal I was going to go for. Um, so yes, but I would say it wasn't really that well informed. And then as I, the further along I got, the more I kept thinking, well, I really want to have like my own research group. I want to like unite a bunch of people that want to answer similar questions and like work as a team and like make that happen. So um, that became the new kind of motivation for becoming a professor. What has been the most surprising? Like what did you need to know in being a professor that you were unprepared for? Because there's probably a lot of people listening to this who are Mm -hmm. thinking similar things. And so I think the most that we educate our listeners about this, the better. Um, I'd say the amount of paperwork (laughs) and like rigmarole that you have to deal with is was the biggest surprise. Like you think... I thought, oh, if I become a professor, I'm going to be like sitting around reading books, you know, and like catching <laughs> bees all day. <laughs> and there are good days like that. But a lot of the days it's there's a lot of like email and forms. And I, I always think like the folks in my lab, I, I don't think they have any like concrete idea, like how much you have to do for every person, like how much paperwork and all kinds of st- just stuff there is. You know, you're always when you have a group, you're, you're kind of checking in on everybody and you want to stay engaged. So you're kind of having to constantly switch what you're thinking about and check into what they're working on. And it's like, you know, it's a lot to keep track of. So speaking of your lab group, who is in your lab group? Do you have students? Do you have postdocs? And are they all working on different topics? Um, well, we're all working on bumblebees, but I'd say the questions are pretty different. So I have a, I think I have like the perfect size lab right now. I have three graduate students, one postdoc, one technician who's been with us from the beginning. Um, and then I have, uh, kind of almost an, a small, I'd say a small army of undergraduate researchers too. So it's like a good, good size. And so 
my three students, so Erica is studying queen bumblebees. Like um, most of the bumblebee research that's been done has been on like, social colonies or workers. But the queens, they have this really interesting life history where they'll, um, they spend most of their life on their own. So they're, they're solitary insects for most of their life. And then they do this really interesting thing where they have to found a colony and they're solitary and then they produce offspring and then they express maternal care and then those offspring emerge as adults and then they perform sibling care. And then the queen is more like a almost, I, I guess I'd say like a honeybee queen sort of like she's specialized on reproduction at that point. So the queens go through these ontogenetic changes that are really very dramatic. Um, so so Eric is working on queens and how they do things like. Um, make decisions between investing in different activities and she's going to be going out hopefully to um, the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory this summer um, and my student Natalie is going out too and Natalie's working on um, she's gotten really interested in metabolomics and thinking about um, nutrition as you know this kind of dynamic super multifaceted state so a lot of the work I've done on nutrition in the past has been like take this bee, extract its lipids, and then like measure, count, like quantify how much lipid was in the bee. Like it's this very sort of crude, you have this multi, single kind of thing that you're measuring. Um, whereas this, the work that Natalie's doing, you know, we can look at all kinds of different lipids and like the levels of these different things and look at things with a much more sort of fine scale approach. So Natalie's looking at um, how... Uh, the foraging decisions that a bumblebee makes, whether they're foraging for pollen or nectar or even nectar robbing, which is this weird thing that bumblebees and some other bees do where they'll bypass the normal way of getting into a flower and they'll make an incision at the base of the flower where, near the nectary and they'll go in and take the. It's like a shortcut. That's so crazy. What? Wait, yeah. why do they do that? <laughs> um, why do they do it? Well, um, I guess so you could say that it's a shortcut. So they're expending less energy and less effort to get something more readily. So you could mm -hmm. say that that's why they do it. But what drives them to do it, we don't know. So Nally's going to be looking at these different foraging kind of states that bumblebees can be in and trying to find an association between metabolites and the body and some of the, the behavioral decisions that they're making. Um, and then Kaylee is working on several different things. But I'd say uh, probably the main thing she's gotten interested in is taste. So she, we don't know that much about how bumblebee taste operates. I mean, we know they, they use gustation, generally speaking, the same way as other insects. But um, there are things about the gustatory receptors that bumblebees have that we don't know anything about. Like compared to other bee genomes that we have, um, in the bumblebee genomes, there are these expansions of gustatory receptors. So they have new gustatory receptor genes basically and we don't know what they do and if it confers them any kind of functional you know advantage so she's looking at that in in bumblebees too so and then Claudinea um is the postdoc in the lab and she's studying um larval development and how there are certain things that can happen really early in development during the larval stage that um, kind of set you up to have a different, you know, reproductive fate. If it's the difference between becoming a queen or a worker that happens during larval development in bumblebees, your body size is also determined during that, during that stage. And then we have some evidence that, um, your rearing history, uh, can also impact traits like how responsive you are to sucrose and, 
uh, how good you are at um, learning, uh, associative learning. So she's she's studying how things that happen during that really early stage, how they are sort of perpetuated through the life of a bee. That's a really wide range of things. <laughs> I That's know. so exciting. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so what's your favorite part about being a PI? You sort of mm-hmm. talked about what you didn't expect about it, but what is like what gets you up in the morning and what you get excited about? Um, I I'd say um, it's really fun to have these folks in the lab that they were gravi- they gravitated to the lab because they liked the kind of ways that we were already thinking about things. So we already have this kind of shared set of interests, but then it's fun to see the students kind of develop their own ideas that are moving off in some new direction. It's really fun to like help them figure out how to do the thing that they want to do. And like, whether that means roping in someone new, who's a new collaborator, who's really good at doing this thing that they want to do, you know, or whether it's kind of trying to figure out where they should work and helping them troubleshoot experimental methods, like, or even like finding funding for their work, like just kind of taking the things that they want to make happen and like helping them push it forward, whatever that means. Um, that I, I really like that part of it. Did you grow up on the East Coast? Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm from North Carolina, like a really small town in coastal North Carolina. Wow. <laughs> what town? Um, uh, Ocean Isle Beach. No one's okay, heard of it. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. pretty small. Um, and uh, yeah, I um, went to a small college there. And I actually, so I, oh, it's a long story, but I went to college the first time when I was like 17. I tried it and I was like, oh, I hate this. Oh. And I, I dropped out of college and spent a few years like traveling around with friends and just kind of hanging out. And then, um, and then I had this urge to go back. I could like feel it. I was like, oh, I want to go back to school, you know, and study something. And so I, I went back and yeah, I went to a small college and I, I'd hardly worked in a lab at all. Like um, I did get to work with this one person, um, but, you know, and there was research going on there, but it was harder than, you know, at an R1 to like get in a lab and do work. So I had the tiniest bit of experience, but I got really interested in social insects and I'd like I'd read so much. I mean, I could have cited the ants to you, like (laughs) multiple past. I was so into it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I I could definitely like walk the walk or talk the talk, if not walk the walk. So um, when I was looking for graduate schools, uh, I got into a lab at University of Illinois, Gene Robinson's lab, and he works on honeybees and genomics and behavior. And um, like looking back now, I'm like, wow, I'm so lucky that he <laughs> like picked me to get to join his lab because, you know, I was definitely coming from a smaller university, wasn't known, didn't have any, you know, I feel like now we expect students, we expect so much of students, like we expect them, some, you hear some folks like wanting students to have a paper coming in. I like that. I didn't even know about research papers really at that point. I mean, I'd, I'd read a bunch, but I didn't really know like what it took to, to publish a paper. I had no, idea. like the idea of actually being on one as an undergrad just wasn't an option for me. So, um, yeah, kind of a little miracle that I ended up like here from, from there. It. Yeah. It's interesting. We end up talking about mentors and mentorship a lot on this podcast, actually, just because I think as scientists, it can really sort of just change everything for you. Mm-hmm. And I have a similar experience where I look back, I'm like, wow, you know, I was just really lucky to be able to fall into these people's hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the time that I did being relatively unprepared for what I was getting into. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's cool to hear stories like that over and over again, especially from someone who's 
as well known as Gene Robinson. He's pretty cool about that. I think he like he really listened. Like when students apply to work in his lab, this was my experience at least. He could tell I didn't have a lot of the polish, but that I had like the interest. And I think he's been doing science for long and had a a lab for long enough that he can kind of see that potential in people, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's part luck, part he's just really great about like looking for talent out there in the world that maybe doesn't have all the, he didn't have much of a CV, but he could still see it. So So you'd mentioned that you have all this knowledge of social insects that you cultivated during your undergrad. Uh, do you have a favorite specific species? Uh, I've really gotten interested in a subgenus, the Alpina bombus. They're, um, the group that's, um, in the Arctic. So, um, and they're just really awesome. Like they're real, uh, well, the ones I've seen are really large bodied. Like there's this one species, Neoboreus, that's like really big. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they think that uh, they follow um, this rule where um, organisms that live at higher or in cool, uh, like colder places tend to have larger bodies so that they can like conserve more heat. Um, and they're just really interesting. And there's this like group of bumblebees that are social parasites where they parasitize other bumblebees. Like they don't make workers anymore. The Queens hmm. just go find the nests of other, the Queens of other species and they, enter the nest and they'll either like lay eggs um, surreptitiously or they'll even hang out in the nest with the host queen. Um, Those are, there's a whole subgenus of bumblebee that has that lifestyle. And then within this group, the Alpinobombus, there's like another independent evolution of the social parasitism. And so the group's just really interesting. And the the idea that it can live in the Arctic where it's so cold or it used to be um, so cold and, um, the adaptations that they had to um, acquire to be able to do that or something we know really little about. So I think I th- I'm very interested in that group right now. Yeah. So I had no idea that there were bees in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. Uh, there aren't many. <laughs> <laughs> is your lab involved in studying those specifically? We did one trip um, a few years back now where we went and collected bees from Alaska Um so, uh, and we actually sequenced their genomes and we we're still analyzing them now. Cool. <laughs> Take science. It can be slow sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, so we're, we're doing some genomic stuff with, with bees, Arctic bees. And, um, but I have a, dreams of getting back up there because I think like there are important things going on everywhere in the world, you know, related to bees. But I would say being in the Arctic and just like seeing how, warm it was and and mm-hmm. talking to people and hearing the stories of how much the the weather has become completely unpredictable and it's unpredictable but then it's also just warming and um uh it definitely is very moving like it's hard to know how to help that but i right. think um monitoring what's happening and telling people about it is critical it's part of what what needs to happen to to try to stop it so um i'm really motivated to get back up there but it's also very expensive so i bet (laughs) yeah the trip we went on we um when you first start faculty jobs you get some startup money so you have some money that you can see different projects that you really want to do so i have always wanted to go to the arctic and and work on these bumblebees and so i thought well fine i'll i'm just gonna do this (laughs) 
did it. On that note, we are running out of time, but I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners, whether that's about being a scientist, about your job in particular, about what you study, any words of wisdom or something you want to share about your organism. Hmm. Uh, well, there are a million things I could tell you about the bees, but I'll just say I would definitely recommend to everybody to start thinking I'm sure everyone is already, but even more so about climate change and how it's impacting your organism. And I would say that folks who are working even on basic research, like asking really fundamental questions, there are still ways to take your research and and twist it in different directions where you can actually contribute to conserving your organism or better understanding how it's being impacted by global change. So that's something that I ended up like over the arc of my career so far. That's something I've done and I think it's been really rewarding. So I would, I guess I would encourage people that aren't thinking about those kinds of questions already uh, to maybe uh, consider that. Interview Sound was managed by Carl Haro von Mogel. Editing for this episode was done by Madison Sankovitz. Logo design is by Miwa Shirai. Additional help came from Jesus Pena and me, Nathan Sai. This podcast is supported by Science for Citrus Health and the UC Riverside Graduate Student Association. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Bench, a production from SciComm at UCR. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash SciComm UCR.